The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with the best co-host in the world, Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? I also have the best co-host in the world, just want to say that. (laughs) It's funny how that works, right? Yes. Oh, we're so glad you're listening today. We have so much fun here. Hey, Christy, how is your flow? heavy. I'm actually menstruating right now. Congratulations. Thanks. I don't really love it. (laughs) Honesty counts all the time. Yeah. Pain. And my flow is really heavy this time around. And I'm not enjoying that. No, no. I know you had to deal with the possibility of encountering your flow as well as a medical procedure. Would you be willing to talk about that a little bit? Yes, just briefly. I had my second colonoscopy last month, uh, just after the recording of our last episode, and I ended my period just a couple days before I had the procedure done, and I was so anxious because when you get a colonoscopy, you are just so vulnerable already. You haven't eaten. (laughs) You empty out your body with every, it's just like the prep is terrible, right? But then on top of it, having to worry about the fact that I could be bleeding and having to lay there in this vulnerable position. Yeah, it was, I, I mean, I'm wondering, I can't be the only one who's ever thought about the fact that, oh my gosh, I might have my period while I get a colonoscopy. Mm. Just the added stress of that, right? So I think, you know, when we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, you mentioned just how much we have to plan our lives around bleeding. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. Mm. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it's vulnerable. It's really vulnerable at times. What would have happened if you hadn't ended your period two days before, do you think you would have asked to reschedule or was it something you were prepared to encounter? I was prepared, but as we've talked about before, I would have just put a tampon in, right? I guess I would have told the nurse that I was meant, but they didn't ask me. And that seems to me like if you're, I don't know, you're so vulnerable when you get a, I mean, obviously think about it. you have to have a tube stuff, you know, up your butt. Yeah. And up you're, your butt. it's up your butt. That's what it is. It's a medical <laughs> procedure up your butt. But so, and, and your bottom half is entirely exposed to the room that's yeah, taking exactly. care of the procedure. And there's two male doctors. I had a female nurse in there, but like I thought so many times, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not menstruating. So yeah, it was just a uncomfortable thought. I'm curious if our listeners ever coordinate their life, their medical procedures or any other parts of their life around their menstruation love to hear from y'all let us know how you handle let us know please we want to hear from you i find that every month is different right i am premenstrual thank you so much great times (laughs) my emotions this sometimes there's a lot of physical things happening this time my emotions are like at the forefront if i feel anything i feel it all that's just where i'm at we just had a really great interview Mm. where you Mm -hmm. felt some things 
everybody is going to be feeling things after on hearing this episode. Some of our stories today, there are feelings to be had, not just for those of us who are BMSing, but for all of us. We're going to hyper focus on the patient experience. But before we get into that, Christy and I want to tease a very special live episode we're planning for July. As we learned from episode four with NCHEM, July is Fibroids Awareness Month, and we thought it would be the perfect time to host a live stream patient panel. I think we might have a couple doctors too, right? I mean, this is not planned yet, everybody, but we are going to do it. It's It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. So make sure to keep your eyes open for the special event. I'm just so excited about the possibility to hang with some of our listeners. Yes, yes. Please can't wait to meet you. Whoever this is listening to this, our voices right now, we want to meet you. So look forward to July where we can do that. But back to this month on Flow, where we're talking about the patient experience. We're going to hear from a few patients on today's episode. Brittany, you can find her on TikTok at Britsburg, B-R-I-T-S-B-U-R-G. We're also going to hear from Michelle, you remember her from episode three, and Tiana, a sickle cell patient with an amazing new advocacy organization that provides education about reproductive health for those with sickle cell. Now, all three patients have experienced extreme menstrual bleeding. Brittany Jacobs is who we'll hear from first. She went viral when her TikTok video explaining uterus didelphus went online. What is something a doctor completely ignored you about when clearly there's something wrong? Uh, Yeah, I'm about to own this. I've always considered myself to have a really high pain tolerance, but my periods were so bad I would cry. I always bled out of my tampons. When I was pregnant with my first kid, I only carried on one side. Sex was really painful. I got two periods every month that were a normal cycle and would cycle, but they were two like separate periods. Anyways, so like 30-something hours into labor, the nurse looks down, you know? I've, I've had pap smears, I've, I've, I'm in birth, like giving birth, and the nurse looks down and she says, oh, honey, you have two vaginas, two cervixes, and two uteruses, and for 25 years, no one noticed. So before we start this interview, I just have to let our listeners know and and prepare them that this experience that Brittany shares with us was so infuriating. I honestly react in ways that I never have before. And although it takes a lot to shock me at this point in my career, this was pretty incredible. Her story is certainly one for, for the books. Mm-hmm. Let's all take a listen. Hello. Hi, Brittany. Thank you for being with us today. Welcome to Flow. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, we're excited to talk to you. You have had an extreme experience uh, related to menstruation. Your extreme experience has a name, Uterus Didelphus, and your viral TikTok video unpacks what that means. Our listeners can follow you at Britsburg, that's B-R-I-T-S-B-U-R-G. But assuming they haven't heard your story yet, can you tell us what Uterus Didelphus is and when you found out? So Uterus Didelphus is a failure of the malarian ducts to form while in the womb, causing you to keep the two fully functioning uteruses, cervix, and vaginas that you have while you're in the womb, but you only have one labia. 
So when I was in the middle of birth, I wasn't dilating any further. And a nurse asked to do an examination. They've been doing them, the cervical checks, but she wanted to go a little further. And that is when she discovered that I had two vaginal canals and it was impeding on the birth of my son. And to become officially diagnosed, I had to go get a dye test done with an ultrasound because there are a lot of different abnormalities that can happen to the uterus while the malarian ducts form together. Okay, so I'm going to say time out. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, oh my goodness, on many levels. So you didn't find this out that you had, you have two vaginas? So on the outside, everything looks normal. Uh, when I was younger, I did discover that there was like two openings inside my one opening, if that makes sense. It's best described the way I thought of it was it was a hymen. So it's just like this septum, like the septum in your nose, it just separated right down. And it, it was like, I would say like half an inch inside that it would start to separate. If I may, just because in your videos you talk about this, but it is incredible information that you've gleaned since learning about this condition that you possess. Everyone starts with two vaginas, two uteruses. Like in the womb, that's how embryos begin. And then they merge. Not unique at all. We all go through it, technically. I think what I'm shocked about is that you didn't realize this until you were in labor. Mm -hmm. So where were the OBGYNs? <laughs> like before this. That, um, that's where I'm like stuck. Yeah, no, me too. It was very frustrating. Um, it was almost amusing. After I got pregnant, I, I had another pregnancy. And so now I knew, and I would go in saying, hey, I have uterus didelphus. And these doctors would look and they'd be like, oh, it's textbook. It's so clear. You know, I wouldn't have missed this. And I, I so badly want to be like, well, you did. Cause you, <laughs> you missed it. I was here before, this is my second time. Yeah, it was hard to stay polite sometimes cause it was very frustrating. Let me just ask, in your brilliant, concise info videos, since sharing your story, you review that you'd been to the doctors, that you'd had pap smears. No doctor noticed. In fact, it was the nurse in the OR who noticed. But before we get into the noticing, your experience of menstruation included heavy periods, painful intercourse, bleeding through tampons before diagnosis. Before you knew why, since doctors weren't giving a diagnosis, how did you manage such extreme intense menstruation periods? Like you said, I don't know if manage is the word, more like a suffering, definitely more than I should have. Uh, I was always bleeding through my underwear and I thought I didn't know how to insert a tampon, which led to a lot of shame for me. I felt like it was a me problem instead of a body problem. In the first three days of my cycle, the, the pain was really intense and I would cry as an emotional way to cope with it. And I used Physically, electric heating pads are a lot stronger than the ones that stick on, but those are good for like on the go. Um, hot baths, those were the best. I would take sometimes three a day to help with the pain. And then Midol and ibuprofen, that helped as well. So you were self-managing. You were letting doctors know what your experience and how extreme it was, but there was no testing that could clarify what was going on. There's a dye test that could have been done, but I don't know that they, they had put together because I go to military doctors my whole life. I've been associated with the military. And so it's a team. It's never just one doctor. So it's very hard to put together all the symptoms when 
one doctor gets this symptom, one doctor gets this symptom. Gotcha. So a team that wasn't necessarily communicating with one another? Possibly. While we're on the topic of menstruation and tampons, I am going to, here on Flow, we are just, we just go with our questions. <laughs> Lots of straight talk. So if you have two vaginas, where was the tampon going? Yeah, I love the description that you use of, of your nose. So if you were putting tampon in just one side of your nose and you're still bleeding out the other, is that possibly why the, it was so... And then I just have so many questions. What about the doctor? <laughs> like, do your because do, if you have two uteri, then they not necessarily going to bleed at the same time, correct? So yeah, I'm sorry, I have so no, many questions. You're you're okay. So I believe I did have two uh, bleeding cycles, but it was so irregular. Like I do believe that I would bleed from both sides, but like twice a month. I think one side wouldn't bleed as heavily as the other side. It was maybe the hormones of being on my period that caused like spotting. So yeah, like I would put a tampon in, it would kind of just go up whichever side I had put it into, not knowing that there was another side and it would bleed out. So those never worked. Um, I'm on a support group on online and a lot of the women use two tampons which is crazy to me not about that so I just had to use ads I'm just confused I and I mean this in like not with you I'm confused with how the providers didn't know this until you had a baby <laughs> yeah yeah me too. that's my confusion that is it like that's why I'm in awe of like your story because it's like how how did no one see this for you like that makes me a little bit angry that's where all of this is coming from <laughs> there was a period of time I had a lot of anger about it especially because the the biggest thing for me was I saw physically that my son was just lumped up on one side and I would try I'd be like this is not normal like he's not moving past my belly button I would go in for ultrasounds he was never where he was supposed to be stuff like that. So I, w I just was very insistent. Hey, something isn't right. And they just know it's, it's okay. Sometimes women carry like this, like just very dismissive. And so when you were in that, the OR, when the nurse noticed doing the exam as things were proceeding in the birth, how did your doctor first respond when the nurse pointed out the situation? Like what was his bedside manner or her bedside manner? The doctor he was pushing that C-section was my only option. And the nurse, like she would sneak in and she'd be like, it's not your only option. Like we can cut the septum, tell them that you want the septum cut. <laughs> and so I also had a doula there and she was helping me advocate. And we were really pushing for that natural birth that we wanted. So we pushed to get the septum cut and he was, he was pretty supportive um, since that it was a team and never felt like he was a person, a place blame on for not noticing. And it was just a moment of this is what's happening. Where do we go from here and how do we handle this and get the baby out safely? So once he was on the, on board with cutting my septum and my wishes, we went and we cut it. And I, I think it was more that he knew how to do a C-section and he didn't know how to cut the septum. It was just lack of experience and wanting to do what was in his skill set and safest for me. And it wasn't even him that delivered my son either because his shift ended after my surgery. 
and before the baby. So a whole nother doctor came in and delivered my son. Yeah, I think him wanting to do the C-section probably also had a little bit to do with malpractice suits. It would have been safer for you to just have a C-section and not have to deal with a vaginal birth. Whew, lots to discuss here. So since you have had this, I don't really want to call it a diagnosis because you can, it doesn't matter. It's, it's who you, yeah, but what what would you refer to it as? I don't know, since I found out I had two vaginas. <laughs> like, yeah, you have two vaginas. Well, not um, more technically because I left it cut. Yeah, so I, I still have two uh, uteruses, two cervixes, but when they cut that septal wall in my vaginal canal, it like went up to the cervix and they individually, a lot of people were confused about this. So the septum that they cut, they left it open, but each side they had to stitch shut so it wouldn't bleed out. Cause it was like the thickness. He told me it was like the thickness of a, a thumb. Like it was very thick, he said. And so they had to stitch each side shut, but it was left open into one. Each side, meaning, you know, we're getting into like deep anatomy. Each side of the vaginal septal wall, I guess. So it's like there was one, now there's two. And because of the cutting, we have to stop the bleeding. That's where the stitches came in. I know. I, I think I have a hard time explaining that because a lot of people are very confused. We're just like not prepared as people to hear about things that aren't discovered until so much later in life, right? About the human body. I'm going to ask a somewhat unrelated question. Do you think that it was harder to for your care because you're you have military insurance? And because you are not the first person. I've actually talked to a number of people in my career that are in that medical system and have similar problems as far as getting care, consistent care. It wasn't a problem when I was active duty, but every time on the dependent side, yeah, it becomes uh, a bigger problem. I feel like when I was active duty, they knew that I was sacrificing my work to be there, that, you know, I had to take time off of my work and have the support of my command. So whatever it was, had to be a big enough deal for me to be there versus now when I go in, I don't feel a need to convince them that I need their help, but I feel like uh, you almost have to go in there and say, Hey, like, look, I'm not just here to be here. I feel like there's a very big assumption that I, I come into the hospital because I think it's fun or something along those lines. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I know it's, it's something that people who aren't in the military or aren't spouses of military people who are in the military don't really think about, but it's, it is challenging. I know that it's a whole different ball game and it's, it can be challenging. I follow you, Brittany, and I've seen so much of it. I know part of the joy was to see the brand new reaction, because as many of our listeners, this will be a brand new story. I do know that you've been sharing it online. You've been so open about it and doing great, again, great info, educational videos. What is it like sharing it online and having that amount of public feedback with your personal story? Well, I can't say that I wasn't like a little bit embarrassed at first. I mean, I'm talking about my own personal body. But as time went on, I found it very empowering because it was so surprising to me, not only how little I knew about my body at first, but how little all of us know about our bodies. 
And these are conversations I really think we should be having more often. And I'm glad to be someone who's there to answer so many questions. I've made a comment, like I feel like the online sex ed teacher, <laughs> but I have no, I have no medical background um, or anything like that. I just want people to know I'm just doing my own research that uh, we all have access to and we should all be reading the information we have for us in order to advocate for ourselves and our needs. Yay. Yes. We are all about that here at Flow. Thank you for sharing and saying that. Yeah, we believe in normalizing the conversation and in honoring the fact that there's a whole intellectual obstacle course to go through in uh, trusting yourself, knowing your own body. There's things we have to learn to be able to then speak to the medical teams that know medicine so well. And you've clearly been on that journey. I'm curious, what advice might you give listeners who are going through an extreme experience and they're not getting like a clarified answer, just as you were seeking a clarified answer to your symptoms? I would strongly suggest if you're having menstrual pain to request, if you, be, if you believe that your symptoms are aligned with mine or that you believe something's wrong with your uterus or your, your periods, getting a, requesting a dye test from your doctor where they do the ultrasound, that will help them see the shape of your uterus and understand, because there's so many different like uh, abnormalities that can happen besides just uterus didelphus. So understanding the shape of your uterus can help them a lot. And um, it's not really invasive. It's very safe and painless to have done. But the biggest thing you need to do is find the courage in yourself not to just have that conversation with your doctor, but continue to advocate and press that something is wrong and believe in your pain. I, for a long time, just thought I had a low pain tolerance. That was something that really held me back. So, so trust yourself. Beautifully Yay. said. Yeah, that's the mission <laughs> we have here on Flow, Brittany. When you did think it was low pain tolerance, and then you found out there's a complete reason for that pain tolerance, was there any other sort of psychological journey you had to go on and understanding for so many years what you had been struggling with was real? There was definitely like a, a shock and just like all of these moments, it felt like just came flooding to me. Like I remember like always being embarrassed on the beach and having like my period bleed through and now being like, oh, it was so simple. It was so simple. All of these embarrassing moments, all of these weird things, like they had an explanation. It was more of a shock adjustment than anything else, I would say. There, like I said, there was anger for a little bit, especially having my son. But yeah, it was like an anger stage, a shock phase, and then a I'm gonna inform phase. Yes, well, we're grateful to have you in the inform phase. And thank you for being so vulnerable to share about the vulnerable, the embarrassment and the shock phases. Wow, 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 wow right? Mm-hmm. At one point, Brittany said that I seem amazed and maybe I am, but honestly, I'm more angry for her and for anyone who has experienced anything remotely similar to this. What do you think, Jess? I mean, like you, you found her on TikTok. So you had a little bit more information going into this interview. Right. I was prepped. <laughs> yeah. You were a little prepped. I had no clue. And I think that that was interesting, right? For 
to have that kind of like what in the heck oh I'll, yes well because refrain from swearing right now <laughs> it's an extreme condition that is unique but really what was so infuriating perhaps is the way she was treated and it wouldn't have mattered what the condition yes. was the way she was treated is what was yes. extreme in a real negative way yes she was dismissed she wasn't trusted to know that she knew something was wrong even when her baby was carrying on one side of her body i mean it's absolutely, even the fact that she was put on birth control without a pregnancy test, uh-huh. mm. Christy just can't go there. Like, <laughs> Christy can't, can't go there. None of the neglect or dismissal that Brittany experienced is okay. But we appreciate Brittany sharing her story with us because it helps other women who have relatable dismissive experiences in a medical scene. And that is exactly what this episode is all about. So while uterus didelphus is an extreme condition and not knowing the diagnosis is even more extreme, sometimes, as we're about to hear, even with an early diagnosis, puberty and first menstruation can still be extreme. We're going to hear more about that from Michelle right after this word from our sponsor. Now, a word from Takeda, a proud sponsor of the Flow Podcast Initiative. Takeda is the manufacturer of Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Together, we're committed to connecting you to the resources that can support you throughout your journey and to helping getting the word out to women everywhere. You have a voice, you have a community, and you have our unwavering support. To learn more, visit vonvendi.com. You may remember our next patient voice from episode three, What is Disordered? Michelle is a Von Willebrand's patient and mother of two. Unlike Brittany, who we just heard from, Michelle knew what extreme conditions she'd be managing during first period and pregnancy. But as we're about to hear, knowing doesn't make the condition any less extreme. So you knew from a young age you had this diagnosis, It you felt the effects of it, you, you were learning more in the community. What was it like then to have your first menstruation experience and was there prep for it? Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> I don't want to say a near-death experience, but it kind of came to that. Um, uh, we were self-managing at home and keeping on the phone with the hematology clinic and it, I went down so hill so quickly with my bleeding being so heavy that um, my hemoglobin reached a six, which is like really bad. It's supposed to be like a 12. So I, the, the amount of blood volume in my body was like, my organs were about to shut down. It was pretty severe, even though I had a diagnosis, like, even though we knew the medication to give, even though we knew it was coming, it still rocked our world completely. I had to have blood transfusion, I had to be inpatient hospitalized, and then I was put on continuous birth control. So at that point we decided I cannot menstruate. It's not even possible. We just suppressed my menses all together for many, many years, actually, up until maybe four, four years ago. After that, did the menses stopped or was there other... Yeah. So we finally got under control with continuous birth control. And actually throughout the years, I would have to switch birth control because being on it continuously, my body over like three or four years would be like, oh, wait, 
we're being tricked, you know, and then I'd, I'd have breakthrough bleeding and then I'd, it'd be a whole mess with bleeding issues again for months and months until we could find another birth control to completely suppress it. I'd been on, um, the patch, the, the NuvaRing pills, uh, just all kinds of different options throughout the years, trying to keep the periods away. So, and I've heard similar stories within the bleeding disorders community that not every medication will work long-term that we have to find, kind of keep tricking our bodies and stuff, which is weird, but I guess I'm just thankful we have birth control even <laughs> because now I manage with, um, prophylactically, I use my, my plasma more during my periods. I'm trying not to go back on birth control, but I'm glad that it's an option for me. So what was that transition for you? Like, if we can ask, did you go off the pill because you wanted to start a family? Yes. It took me like six, well, four to six months to come off of the pill. I had been on it for so many years and it was in my system. So I didn't even um, like ovulate or have a period for four to six months after I stopped taking it. But that is why I came off because we had just gotten married and planned to start a family. How was that transition for you from being on the pill to not being on the pill? You just said that, you know, it took a few months, but once you started bleeding again, what were your periods like? I was surprised that they weren't as severe as when I had started menstruating back, um, you know, in my puberty days, like when it was, when I was hospitalized and I just had expected it to be. I had almost expected to be inpatient hospitalized again. Like it was going to be super severe, almost unmanageable. I didn't know how I would get pregnant in between continuous bleeding, but it ended up being that my, my first period was like, I think nine, 10 days long, which I mean, I think a normal person is like seven days or maybe five to seven days. So I don't think it was that crazy. And then after that, the next subsequent month, it, it got shorter. So I eventually evened out. And I was on like a regular seven day cycle after I waited it out a couple months and it was manageable with my infusions, which I was shocked. I couldn't believe it because I hadn't even tried that for so many years because I was, it was so severe when I had first started. So that's why, um, since I've had my daughter, she'll be a year. So I've been having, I've had probably eight periods since I've had her and all of them I've managed prophylactically with my plasma. And I've never tried that growing up. And I think coming off the birth control, I realized that it kind of created like a, a mood disorder that I didn't know was there. Just being on birth control since the age of what, four, 13, 14, up until the age of 28 continuously, I think that was just, you know, my norm. But then when I came off of it, I realized it did create, yeah, like a weird mood disorder that I, I feel a lot more clear headed now. Although I am, like I said, very thankful the birth control probably saved my life. So it's kind of a catch. That's my personal reason for trying to stay off of it and manage this way. That's a great perspective. Side <laughs> note, Michelle, I also just went off the pill. I haven't needed to be on it. And so, yeah, I'm like, I'm taking notes over here. <laughs> like, interesting. Yeah, I think even outside of our community, the pill is just very prevalent. Like, you know, that's our generation. Everyone takes it. Is there any advice you would give to, you know, people who have less severe von Willebrand's disease? Is there any advice that you would give them about their heavy periods or um, some, a woman who is trying to, to 
get a, a proper diagnosis. Is there any advice that you would give in addition to what you've already said? Yeah, I actually have um, quite a few friends that, you know, are type ones and, you know, they may be less severe quote unquote than me, but I see their bleeding as pretty severe compared to like my normal friends. And I don't think it's to be dismissed. Although when you're referred to a bleeding disorder specialist, it's a quote unquote hematologist. And so they're used to seeing very severe cases. And I've heard from their experiences that they can often feel very dismissed in the office, very rushed, um, you know, just like underheard and misunderstood, not getting the proper care because they think that the bleeding isn't as bad as like their other patients. I would just say, keep pushing, keep being that advocate, like find, find that backbone before you walk in there and just don't leave with anything less than what you need and what you want. Um, and that in those appointments, uh, you might even have to work harder for a diagnosis because you might be a little bit less severe, but that doesn't mean it's any less justifiable or that it needs any less care. You may need, there's like no sprays and different other medications. It doesn't have to be birth control. So there's others ways to manage. You don't have to be scared. I know some women, it's against their religion even to be using birth control. And they may think, oh, well, I don't even care if my periods are heavy. I don't need a diagnosis. I don't need birth control. That's not for me. Well, there's other medications. There's other ways to manage. Just be open-minded. And, and if you feel, like I said, if you feel something in your heart and mind is not right with yourself, seek some help. Life could be a little easier. I'm glad I asked. (laughs) That was a great response. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to reiterate that we are so grateful for our patient guests this month, uh, ones who are able to vulnerably share their stories with us. And I want to echo the importance of patient storytelling. In public health, we see how patients have affected real change in healthcare, and there's still so much work to do. As we're about to hear from Tiana, who has faced racism, let's call it what it is, As a sickle cell patient, we know there is so much work to do. Let's take a listen. Tiana, thank you so much for being on Flow with us. You and I originally met on another Bloodstream Media podcast called Cheat Codes um, when you shared your experience about sickle cell. Actually, do you want to start and just introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Tiana Wolfert. I am 29 years old. Um, I was born with sickle cell anemia, and I am a student, full-time advocate, and recently the founder and CEO of a brand new reproductive health organization. Awesome. We are going to come back to that. So... (laughs) We're going to come back to your organization, but I think it would be really great if we just started with a little bit of knowledge around sickle cell disease in general. Would you agree that the general public knows very little about sickle cell? Definitely. And I feel like what is known is maybe outdated or inaccurate. (laughs) So yeah, why don't we start there? Why don't you explain to us what sickle cell disease is? Um, in layman's terms, so that we can have a better understanding? So it's a genetic disorder. It affects the red blood cell. 
So basically how the average red blood cells live long and they're round and soft. Sickle cells are hard and sticky and they break down like every 30 days and that's what causes the anemia. But the thing about it, I think that the general public tends to associate sickle cell with pain, which is very true. Like pain is the hallmark of sickle cell disease. But basically anywhere that there's blood flow, sickle cell can affect that area. So when those cells sickle, and the oxygen can't flow through properly, that causes all types of problems. And if that happens in your brain, you can have a stroke. Um, it can affect just every part of your body. And then the debilitating pain, the unpredictable pain, the fatigue, that impacts your mental health as well. But in a nutshell, it's a disease that affects the red blood cells. Amazing. And you, you mentioned this, it affects any blood flow. So I'm guessing that means menstruation blood flow as well. Our focus here on flow is, of course, reproductive health. So I have to ask about that interplay. Um, how has sickle cell impacted your reproductive life? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people don't really connect sickle cell and reproductive health together. But in this population, it can start as early as puberty. So a lot of our girls and boys have delayed puberty. They may not start their periods until 16. And we know that now the average age is like 10, 11. So it starts with delayed puberty. And for me personally, I've had a hard time with like heavy periods. And because I had a bone marrow transplant 10 years ago, my platelets sometimes are out of whack. So the heavy bleeding I was already having is sometimes even heavier. And then I'm on blood thinners because I have a history of pulmonary embolisms. So it's just been a vicious cycle for me personally. And I don't think that my story is uncommon. It's so interesting, like you say, that reproductive health and sickle cell aren't thought about in companionship, what would you want, so that's your personal experience, what would you want people to know about the connection between reproductive health and sickle cell? Um, basically, just what I was saying earlier, that sickle cell really can affect every part of you, and that includes your reproductive health. And I know a lot of times when we think about reproduction in this space, we've been kind of boxed in and we just think about it as like fertility and pregnancy, but it's really so much more than that. Like even the type of contraception that sickle cell patients are on is difficult because we're already prone to blood clots. And then we know that there's a link to oral contraception and clotting. So what I really want more so for healthcare providers to know is that they have to be able to equip themselves because a lot of times they just focus on like the pain, the fatigue, the organ damage, and all of that is incredibly important, but we also have to prioritize these reproductive issues. So have you found an OBGYN that you feel listens to you and understands and works with your sickle cell diagnosis and, and living with that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with OBGYNs? What I've found is that 
like I've I've been to OBGYNs who really don't even want to take me on as a patient <laughs> because it's such a complicated case. And in a way, it's like, I guess I appreciate you telling me that I'm out of your league, but we have to get more training and equip these doctors to be able to care for us. So I, I've found like some good GYNs, but I've not really found a GYN that's also knowledgeable about sickle cell. That's got to be such a challenge for you. Mm-hmm. So does your sickle cell doctor help you with your reproductive questions and care? My hematologist does, but I am very blessed and I'm at an advantage because my doctor just happens to be one of the few hematologists whose job is to research fertility and reproductive health. But that's very uncommon. Um, In fact, I know we're going to get into my organization later, but I'm co-founding this organization with my hematologist, which is a really interesting like because of our dynamic as doctor and patient, it's really interesting to do this organization together. But I'm kind of in a bind because like I said, she's really unique. There's not a lot of hematologists who specialize in fertility and reproductive health. Well, how cool that it's you and and your doctor founding this organization. I guess, what is the title of it? and, And what is the mission? My mission with this organization is to provide education for not only the patients, but for the providers as well. And we also want to provide like mental health support. Like I know this is about flow, but our guys deal with a lot. They deal with priapism. So just support groups um, for that. And I really want to take the stigma away and the shame. Like also this community is common for sex to bring on a pain crisis. But a lot of people don't have these conversations with their doctor. They talk about it on social media. So really just want to empower this community to start having these conversations and make reproductive health care standard of care. Love that. All about normalizing conversation here on Flow. Tiana, it might be a little repetitive. Just taking a step back, again, maybe just emphasize why this connection between sickle cell and reproductive health is so vital. I think that there's just so much about this disease that the general population doesn't know. And what they do know, I find, is often limited. So we think a lot about pain. And then even inside of this community, we talk about pain and organ damage and fatigue. But reproductive health doesn't really get a nod, which is interesting because It's a common theme that starts really early. Like we hear about stories all the time of sickle cell patients who don't start puberty until they're 16, girls who don't get their periods until they're 16, 17. And we know that the average age for the African-American community is like 10 and 11. I just think that a lot of times when I talk to people in this community, they don't really consider their reproductive health until they're ready to start a family. And I want it to become a normal part of our discussions and our advocacy to start educating these families on reproductive health, basically from birth. Yeah, that's so important. So you you mentioned this when you just, you know, commented, but 
Can you talk to us a little bit about just the health disparities in sickle cell? I know that you and I have had this conversation before, but could you let our listeners know a little bit more about that? There's so many. I don't even know where to start. But when I think about funding, like if we compare the sickle cell population to the cystic fibrosis population, they have millions, billions in foundational money. They have like over 23 treatments, whereas this community, we're underfunded and overlooked and One of the points that can speak to that is for 20 years, the only FDA approved drug we had for sickle cell was hydroxyurea, which is a chemotherapy drug that a lot of patients don't want to be on. And there are some doctors who aren't even comfortable prescribing it. But for 20 years, that was our only medication. And it was a medication that we found out could manage sickle cell kind of by accident. And then in the last three years, we've had movement where we've gotten three new FDA approved drugs. That has not always been our experience. And I I don't think people realize that sickle cell disproportionately impacts black communities and people. Is it specific to black um, people or is it communities of color in general? I mean, in the United States, it's predominantly a black disease, but I think that's another thing that's kind of hindered us is that people think it's only a black disease and it's not. And then to your point, another kind of disparity and stigma that we deal with is like, like I said, pain is a major part of sickle cell. And in the pediatric world, you're taught to know your body, know what medications work to treat your pain. But then when you get to be an adult, it's like that knowledge is kind of weaponized against you. And so a lot of sickle cell warriors don't have access to comprehensive care and they get their care in the emergency room when they have crisis or when they have an infection. And a lot of times we get stigmatized and perceived as drug seekers. I know for me, when I had my bone marrow transplant, I was treated on an oncology board. And that's what really opened my eyes. I had like a front row seat to the disparities and the stigma because the care that I got on the oncology ward versus the care that I get on like sickle cell clinics is totally different. And just to give our listeners, there is a statistic on this, and Black people are 32% less likely to be prescribed pain medication. Um, So it's a real concern. This episode is about the patient voice. So we would just love to, you know, end by, by talking to you a little bit about patient advocacy. And you've spent a lot of time in hospitals with doctors What advice would you give to those who are struggling with any sort of process with the medical system or just in general? It's up to you. Well, I think specifically for sickle cell, but I'm sure it can work for anyone. What I think I've benefited from is being able to develop a rapport with my medical team. So they know me when I'm well. And then when I show up sick, they're able to compare it and say, like, there's no way she's faking. We know she has a hundred other places that she wants to be. So just developing a rapport and like keeping a line of communication open, I think is really important. And 
it's important to be your own best advocate. Like you should really be as informed as possible. Just one quick follow-up because you mentioned the difference on the oncology floor versus the sickle cell treatment center. And you said there's, there were these distinct differences. Can you just highlight energetically like how you felt as a patient in the sickle cell treatment center versus oncology? One of the main memories that really stands out to me when I was getting treated in oncology, um, I was getting chemotherapy. And so they would rush to me with IV Benadryl. I wouldn't even have to tell them I was nauseous. They would just come to treat the nausea. But then with sickle cell, um, when you have to get those IV narcotics, it causes a lot of itching. And so I went from like getting IV Benadryl without even having to ask, literally had nurses asking me, like, do you want me to push this in your IV fast? Do you want it slow? Um, Coming to give it to me an hour and a half before it was even due. But then as a sickle cell patient, when you ask for IV Benadryl, I'll never forget it because I had just rejected my transplant. So I was officially a sickle cell patient again. And the nurse literally looked at me in the eyes and she was like, oh, we don't give IV Benadryl to sickle cell patients because you guys like the rush too much. What? I'm like horrified. All of our faces are complete jaw drops right now. I know. That's horrific. I guess I then a follow up is what... Is there an avenue to respond to that kind of neglect of care? Like, what do you do in response to that? Well, see, that's what's so difficult. It's that you even have to respond to begin with, because a lot of times, like as an adult with sickle cell, you're you're showing up, you're already incredibly vulnerable, fatigued, in a lot of pain. So having to like be in pain, but then also advocate and try to justify why you're there and why you need this help from the very people who are trained to help you and have the resources to do so, um, it's really hard and it's not easy to navigate. And, you know, I've been an advocate in this space for a very long time. And I will get calls in the middle of the night from warriors who are like in the emergency room and being called drug seekers or like being discharged before they're ready to be discharged. And so it's really something that I don't think we've figured out how to manage yet. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Oh, I, I will give one piece of advice that's not easy, but I think in those types of situations, if we can, writing letters <laughs> to the health systems, to the doctors to make sure that th- those experiences just aren't overlooked and storytelling in general, Tiana, you are helping right now by telling your story. So I I thank you for that. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Like, I know I'm sorry isn't enough, but it's it's just not okay. And we have so much work to do on a systems level. And yeah, I I just hope, yeah, I hope, I hope things get better in general. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you guys for giving me this platform. I think that's kind of how it starts. I think that like the advocates in this community, a lot of times we talk to each other. But until we really start bringing these stories outside of the sickle cell community and bringing awareness so that the general public knows what we go through, I don't know how much control we have on our own. But I think together, you know, we can start to affect some real change. Yes. Yes. Well said. 
Christy. I am so full of rage. Like, PMS is definitely making my emotions at the forefront, but Christy... WTF. Like, can we curse on this podcast? I don't know. We'll have to check. I Patient stories like Tiana's fuel me to want to get involved, like to want to advocate on the behalf of others. Can you help me? Can you hit me with some Christie's tips about how patients and others can add the advocacy to patient advocacy? Yes. I'm just going to highlight one thing that Tiana mentioned a couple of times, and that's that we have so much work to do on the provider side of all of this as well. And that's a whole nother beast. But I just wanted to acknowledge that we have a lot of work to do as far as the care that hospitals and doctors are providing and really ending and working on bias in healthcare and all of those very layered and complex issues. On that note, Let's talk about my tips. First, find your people. All three of these incredible women found support in others. And what finding your people can do is open up so many opportunities to tell your story. And that can be therapeutic. It can be powerful for you. It can be powerful for others. And it can have an overall impact on improving the quality of care within our health system. Number two, don't settle ever. Trust yourself. We talk about this all the time and I didn't want to be repetitive, but hey, I'm going to be repetitive. Trust yourself. And if you need, if you go in and you're treated poorly, know that you can get a second opinion and that's covered by most insurances. A lot of people in the general public just don't know that your insurance will cover you getting a second and seeking a second opinion. And I loved that Brittany mentioned the fact that she had a doula. Doulas are incredible. I, if you're pregnant, there are doulas for all sorts of things in life, though. There's There are death doulas. There, doulas are incredible advocates for patients. So if that's possible for you, I can't recommend it enough. And then last but certainly not least, my last tip this week is really something that we should all know, and that's that you have rights as a patient. And these rights actually differ slightly by state, but I really encourage everyone to look up their laws, their patient rights within their state. And you can do this by Googling patient bill of rights in your state name, or even better, ask your doctor ask your hospital for a copy of their patient rights. And I really recommend doing this. People who speak English as a second language, they have a right to a translator. Uh, You have the right to privacy. You have the right to refuse treatment. You have the right to access your medical records. You have the right to receive information about your diagnosis treatment. All of these things matter. Your life matters. And this sounds ridiculous, but listen to those stories we just heard. Christy, it's so impactful. And when it's repetition about trusting oneself, I say we need the reminders, you know, (laughs) make some noise, get a second opinion, trust yourself and know your rights. There's something about the power dynamic in that room. We've also talked about it. Patient doctor. It's a team. It's a team. It's a team. And as a patient, the message of know thyself, trust yourself is important. It's Another way to put it is, hey, remember that you're not crazy. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy! Ah! On this episode's You're Not Crazy, we want to remind you that patient advocacy is necessary and relatively new. If you find it as nuts as we do that patients deal with inadequate care, 
you're not alone, and you're not crazy. In fact, it might be interesting to know that the term patient advocacy was only defined in the 1950s. The term total care was first used and meant to encompass taking a patient's entire welfare into consideration. The terminology started in the field of cancer, and as we find out more and more every month on Flow, it is much needed in the reproductive health field and all fields. So if you're infuriated like us, remember, you're not crazy. We just have a lot of work to do. So that's it till next month. And remember, we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Jessica Lauren Richmond at Christy underscore public health. And if you like flowing with us, please leave a review. You can do that. Flow podcast on Apple Podcasts has an option. We would love to hear how you enjoy the show. Yes, let us know what you think. And as always, I'll end with a reminder to subscribe, rate, and share Flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow was produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Board and Flow's hosts, Jessica Richmond and Christy Van Horn. Flow was edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be June 10th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating.